0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast, I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg.
1: Uh, Priya for joining me now, TD Securities Head of Global Interest Rate Strategy here in New York. Priya, for now, Is that like the crack in the conviction with Jay Powell at the moment?
2: Hi, John. Uh, Yes, I think uh, Chair Powell is trying to retain optionality, he's trying to retain flexibility. There are a lot of uncertainties out there. You know, we've had the tax cut, so you've had this near term boost to growth. We really don't know if that's going to affect long term growth. We also don't know. how the whole trade war thing is going to play out. So I think what we're hearing from Chair Powell is for now, so the next couple of hikes. But, I, you know, I was struck by the fact that he is not pushing the theme of a higher R-star or a higher neutral rate. He actually brought up the neutral rate a bunch of times, but he's saying there's a lot of uncertainty. Second point, he's not pushing the idea that I think is is embedded in the dot plot, that the Fed is going to go above neutral. I think that is... is I'm, I would say the single biggest risk factor uh, uh, for the equity market is the fact that if the Fed does go above neutral, they are going away from the the narrative of, of normalization to actually tightening. But Chair Powell is not really pushing on these themes. So that's why, uh, uh, you know... Uh, I would say the rates market is essentially priced for that outcome um, but but I, I think uh, there are, he's he's really trying to uh, um, to keep up uh, all his options. But let's explore
1: here. this concept of the neutral rate though. Right. What is the neutral rate? How close are we to it?
2: So you know, if if you look at the dot plot, it's anywhere from two and a half to about three and a quarter percent. Um, we really don't know; it's it's immeasurable. I think uh, what drives the neutral rate is essentially long-term growth. So what drives long-term growth? It's it's labour force participation and it's productivity. Now neither have moved, and I think this is the big puzzle in economics: why are are these factors not moving? And so if they're not moving, then our star is actually much lower. So I think uh, yeah. you know, it's it's a, it's a big issue for the rates market. They
0: right are plugged. Plugins. A. Can we make the plugins given the new lower terminal rate, which is a mystery? Right. And B. Can we make the plugins given central bank balance sheet dynamics, which are a mystery? We have two major yes, mysteries here. Yes, we do. I cannot not say that.
2: We do. I think the balance sheet one is the one that most people think that the Fed can continue to run the balance sheet down. I actually think that the equilibrium level of reserves is much higher than what it was pre-crisis. And so at some point next year, the Fed is going to have to deal with the fact that um, banking reserves uh, will become a binding constraint. So they'll have to stop balance sheet runoff. At the same time, if they've hiked a couple of times and were, let's say, two and a half, three percent 3% on the funds yeah. rate, I think they'll have to stop the okay. hiking cycle.
0: This is really important. Back up again and say, what's going to happen happen in a year with a balance sheet choice at given bank reserves. That's advanced mumbo jumbo. Explain it in English.
2: So uh, what's happening is as the Fed lets the portfolio run off, excess reserves in the banking system do decline. Now, if you look at pre-crisis, excess reserves in the banking system was zero. So I think a lot of people believe that the Fed has a long way to go. Excess reserves are about $2 Now, If if you look at the primary dealer survey uh, um, in May, they actually asked primary dealers, what is the equilibrium uh, level of reserves? And primary dealers said about $500 I think it's closer to potentially one and a half trillion. So you've got three, four hundred billion of reserves that can drain, and then at some point, banks are going to demand these reserves. Where
0: do they drain to? The swamp in Washington? <laughs> I, I, where do they? Dra- so where, where it's an drain accounting
2: to? entity. That's a fair point. It's uh, it, so as the Fed lets the portfolio run off, so so they let these treasuries mature. It's an accounting entity. They essentially reduce right. the level of reserves.
0: Do you know? I've never passed John an exam on debits and credits. You know, I, I, I when she says an accounting entity, I, I'm like I'm like the ultimate D plus student. How did you
1: pass the CFA?
0: It was a miracle. Clouds parted. I went to the Riggs School of, of CFA training. It was the clouds parted. I
1: mean, I just barely and passed. You, and you slipped someone a few hundred dollar bills or no, something? No, no, I
0: did not. But <laughs> but I, the bottle, the eighteen year bottle of scotch. It was a Saturday in July in Charlottesville, Virginia, and I expressed that Johnny Walker Blue down there.
1: Was this a dark night on the in the 70s? Yeah, it was.
0: It yeah, was. I you can know, imagine. 1870s. <laughs> like, you no, know, but seriously, you know, this it's, is really advanced. This is a really grown-up discussion with Priya Misra, John, and it's about the mysteries of these flows. And even the smartest people, John, have no clue what's going to happen over the next 18 months. They can guess.
1: Yeah, um, Priya, I want your guess on how the Fed responds if this yield curve inverts um, later this year.
2: So I think it it depends on how it inverts. Uh, If it inverts at, at this level, I think the market is going to have to price cuts in 2020 or 2021. I think that will absolutely terrify the Fed because then the Fed is going to say, well, the market's pricing in a policy mistake. And it's not if the Fed is going above neutral, which is why I say if it inverts at, you know, three and a half percent, then the Fed is going to say, yes, we did go above neutral. So therefore, we have to ease. But I think an inversion or even flattening here, I think is 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 going to worry the Fed. Now, I do think that they're trying to push back a little bit here. They're saying, look, the curve is flat because uh, of the long end. But, uh, you know, in our Our analysis, we actually find that the curve uh, is very fair if we are heading into the neutral rate. The market is saying stop right here.
1: I find it really interesting the way people view the yield curve and come to different conclusions. I think some people look at it and think about whether it's a symptom of something that's happening with the business cycle. And then others look at it and think, what are the consequences of a inverted yield curve, a flat yield curve, right. regardless of whether it's a symptom of anything, because there will be consequences for maturity transformation, exactly. just credit formation. Right. Um, there will be consequences for how people take risk and what happens to risk-seeking capital. Aren't they the bigger concerns, Priya?
2: There are, and so this, uh, this whole cause and effect issue is key. I would argue, you know, right now the market is essentially priced, or the, or, the, or the rates market or the yield curve, is pricing in this late-cycle behaviour. At some point, if the curve does become flat, I actually think it has broader implications across risk assets, as well as maturity transformation. You know, if you can buy uh, two-year notes at 260, why take on more risk in any other product? You know, when cash has yield, that's pretty attractive. You know, there's your trade war hedge, essentially. You don't need to sell any stocks. You can just buy some front-end treasuries. So I think that's where the flat curve does matter. So I would say right now what it's signaling is Fed's about to end the hiking cycle. And this is where the inversion becomes scary because if the Fed says, no, no, actually, we're going to hike until three and a half. There's your inverted curve, which I think will actually be self-limiting because that's going to spook the Fed.
1: Priya Misra, great to catch up with you. This to get is your wonderful. Inside. Thank you. Yeah, I have Securities no idea what you said there about interest right strategies. strategies.
0: <laughs> Let's talk to the congressman from Corning Glassworks, Corning, New York where they make all that miracle glass that's in our cell phones. Tom Reed is from the 23rd District, New York, which is under the Finger Lakes of New York State. And, of course, he is a former mayor of Corning, and we welcome him today. Tom Reed, Corning Glassworks has gone through like 15 lives since bend Glass. How is Glassworks doing up in Corning?
3: You know they're doing really, very well right now. They they always have an, an uncanny ability to yes. look over the horizon and develop the next product that becomes a. A huge driver for them and you know yeah. the Gorilla Glass and the Fiber Optic, they're doing very well and they got more opportunities coming down the pipeline. Uh, it's
0: amazing compared to that photographic company up northwest up in Rochester that's had some challenges over the years. Tom, I've got to go to the business as usual right now. You were a democratic district, you are now a Republican district, and you're caught in the middle of all the emotions of the president and of course the double negatives and all that. What do you hear from your constituents, and what are you going to do in the next couple days as you listen to your Republican president?
3: Well, you know, obviously, the president has done very well in our part of New York State. He did very well in our district in the last election. And I'll tell you, the sense I get as I go around. As the silent majority is standing firm with him because they appreciate the disruptive approach that he's bringing to Washington, D.C. and to to putting American interests first in everything he does in regards to trade, uh, new policy, foreign policies. And from my perspective, it's resonating still uh, with people uh, back home. Okay,
0: then this is critical out of Horseheads High School. Your father served the nation in the Army, he was, I believe in Korea up against a communist and at the time Soviet threat. How do you take your constituents uh, support of the president and dovetail it with what we saw in Helsinki? I think everyone worldwide wants to know what does his core constituency do with what happened in Helsinki?
3: You know I, I you know as I've always said, if there's an issue I disagree with the president on, Uh, I will express that, and most of the time I do it uh, privately, but on this issue, uh, I disagree, I think, uh, with the president in regards to the Russian relationship. Russia is an enemy, enemy, is an adversary, uh, but even with your adversaries and your enemies, and this is what I do appreciate about the president doing in Helsinki, is reach out to your enemies and see, is there a common interest where we can align to address issues like North Korea, like uh, Iran, like Syria, and the Middle East immigration uh, c- uh, catastrophe that's coming as a result of that destabilization. And so from my perspective, that type of approach to Russia is the more appropriate approach. And I think, you know, the president at his heart is, is trying to do that. But uh, he, uh, obviously, I was not comfortable uh, with uh, agreeing with him in regards to the, the embracing Russia as a true ally and a true friend, because they are not.
1: And Tom, I don't think you were alone. Um, Jonathan here, and I just yeah. want to jump in and focus the conversation now. On the trade side of the story, I think many people agree with you that they're happy that someone has come along trying to break up the status quo and take a new approach to get some different outcomes. I'm just wondering what kind of outcomes you're hoping for here, Tom?
3: Yeah, what we're looking for is just an equitable playing field, a a fair playing field upon which we can uh, trade on the world uh, marketplace. So you start with our our family friends, so to speak, Canada and Mexico, and you look at a, a deal that hasn't been negotiated in decades and renegotiated and modernized. So there's issues of digital commerce. There's issues of access to their dairy markets. Uh, in regards to Canada in particular. And, and I think at the end of the day, we'll, we'll be able to work that out because we are so aligned and we're such a, a close friendship with Canada and Mexico. And all we're looking for when we go onto the world stage outside of Canada and Mexico is when we take on China, uh, that we all recognize the unfair trade practices that China engages in. And when I say we, I'm talking about all the countries of the world. To send the message to China, you can't steal our intellectual property. You can't require uh, the the investment standards of, of just having Chinese ownership and businesses there. You're hollowing out countries. You're taking away countries ability to compete fairly. And that, that to me, is what we're ultimately looking for in this trade yeah, policy. Yeah, Tom, and I think it would be quite
1: now. easy on the international stage to build build a coalition to really address what is happening with the Chinese. But unfortunately, the president has tried to do everything all at once. Do you think trying to do everything all at once and run the risk of isolating allies when perhaps there is a better option to go at China, try to get them to address these trade issues, but do that and do that alone and get your allies on board?
3: Uh, you know, I, I appreciate that, but uh, you know, that has been tried uh, for decades in kind of that slow-go, glacial type of approach to trade policy. What the president is doing is sending the message that, that the trade policy of yesterday has come to an end from America's perspective. We are going to disrupt it. And when you, when you do that, clearly, now your adversaries in, the, in those relationships understand mm-hmm. that you mean a different game. You mean a different uh, right. side of business yeah. that you're going to bring to the table. So have, that's what I think is going on here.
0: Have tariffs affected Glassworks?
3: No, I mean, obviously, any type of uh, trade war is going to uh, uh, impact, uh, you know, they have obviously a world stage they operate on, but then also our agricultural communities. So we're all sensitive to it. But at the end of the day, the message I send uh, to my tra- to the trading partners is stay at the table, negotiate right. these things out, stay at the table, don't walk away. If you, if you think you're going to walk away, you're only going to prolong uh, this dispute. Stay at the table and negotiate this through.
0: Well, we're going to negotiate it through, but do we need to do it bilateral and so adversarial? Or can we find a more multilateral path? I mean, we're we essentially, Congressman Reed, are we back to the 1930s It's Smoot-Hawley?
3: Well, I think, uh, you know, we're not to, to the 1930s, in my humble opinion. We all recognize we're on uh, the world stage. 95% of the world's consumers live outside of America's borders. So what what I think to see is, you know, we, we, we can do bilateral, we can do multilateral. But the bottom line is we will negotiate, like you saw with South Korea, for example, in regards to modernizing some of the provisions there uh, to make it a little fairer for American interests. You know, you stay at the table, we'll work this out, be a bilateral, multilateral. I think there's an appetite to get this taken care of.
1: Tom... Last question. Big tax package passed by the Republican Party in Congress and there are some people concerned that the trade push could be the undoing of the stimulus that we could get for the US economy. Do you see that offsetting the tax story?
3: No, you know, I don't see that uh, in, in regards to the numbers that we're seeing. The economic growth numbers, the job growth numbers, the, the confidence, the consumer confidence numbers—those are all good indicators that you know this type of short-term disruptive anxiety and fear. I don't see having a long-term impact on the economic growth trajectory of America. And from that perspective, I think we're in a position to just continue this growth and keep riding it up.
0: Tom Reed, thank you so much. Greatly appreciated. He is with the 23rd District Republican. Uh, in uh, upstate New York. This is just under the Finger Lakes as well. Tom Reed on a number of uh, topics. Right Next. now, let's switch gears and go to an esteemed gentleman who's never had a Schmitz in his life, and that would be Randall Crosner on finance and our central banking as well. Randy, all my radar is up. Everybody's telling me it's boring, boring, predictable, boring, boring, and you know that's when you get your tail deviation. That's when you get your three standard deviation shock. Are we there?
4: I don't think we're quite there, but I think you're exactly right. It's only when you don't expect it yep. that it hits. I mean, think back to early February. Everything was the smoothest, the, the simplest, the easiest, and suddenly yeah. a new piece of data came out and uh, the markets right. were in uh, tumult for, uh, for a few weeks.
0: Randy, I want to give a shout-out. You can use their research work at, at Booth School of Chicago. Uh, Deutsche Bank, I think, has done beautiful Peter Hooper-like work on the dynamics of the yield curve and central bank balance sheets. Is the, uh-huh. the uniqueness of QE and then to QT, has it given us a wrong picture or snapshot of that 2's10 spread dynamic?
4: Well, I don't necessarily think wrong, but I do think we have to be open to these. These data are not the same as what we typically have had, and so and the circumstances are are different. And so to just say, oh well, in the past, you know, this uh, flatness always meant recession. I think we have to be open to the possibility that it doesn't because of all these other interventions.
1: Do you think there are consequences, though, that come about from an inverted yield curve? For instance, uh, maturity transformation. What happens with credit in the economy? What happens in terms of risk seeking? capital just flooding to the front end of treasuries do you have those concerns randy
4: well well Clearly, people are not um, uh, getting compensated for waiting 30 years rather than waiting overnight. I mean, the difference between overnight rates and 10-year rates in the U.S. is you know, less than, much less than a percentage point. That's not much, uh, much compensation for that. So obviously, they're not given incentives to, to wait, and that can have uh, consequences, exactly as you said, for money flowing in different ways than would be typical with a more uh, steep yield curve.
1: So regardless what the reasons are for the flatness or perhaps the inversion later this year, you'd have to think, Randy, there are consequences that come about from that that the Federal Reserve should be taken notice of.
4: Well, uh, again, it, it, it actually gets back to what's driving the flatness. So Is the flatness being driven because people expect the economy to be going down in the future, or is it because they expect so little inflation, have so little worry about uh, the upside to inflation? I think it's more the latter, and in that case, then the yield curve isn't necessarily telling you such right. a negative story but it's hard to know now. Right. You know, It's always easy to to say, oh, well, no, of course it was because things were going over the cliff. Um, but it is true right. that uh, inflation expectations are pretty low and the expectations of an inflation spike seem to be very low. I think they're probably a little bit too low for my mm. taste.
0: Finally, Wednesday Math with Randall Krosner. Randy, there's a, <laughs> the, the idea of a linear Fed that raises rates step By step inch by quarter point inch and the (laughs) fact is quadratic which is an exponential function folks the fact is as we raise rates more you begin to get more profound more quadratic effects do you know where that moment is or is that something that you feel your way towards
4: it's something that you definitely feel your way towards our models are not very good at sort of pointing out those inflection points or pointing out those turning points most models even if they have some uh, nonlinear elements, as you're, you're describing, and it tend to be very, uh, very smooth. This is one of the reasons why the Fed has wanted to go at such a gradual pace, so that they yep. have time to figure out if something's going wrong. And I think they've been pretty successful, at least so far.
0: What you just heard there from Professor Krauser, folks, is profound. You have to go along the path and monitor what happens because of the danger if you get it wrong as you get up towards a neutral rate and even a restrictive policy, not that we've had that in uh, uh, a zillion years. Randall Krosner, thank you so much with the University of Chicago, their Booth School, and, of course, a former governor of the Federal Reserve. Terry Haynes joins us now with Evercore ISI, and we will digress from policy here with someone qualified to speak of a double negative. He is out of Oberlin, which is a school that takes immense pride in its English curricula. Just to get through, I'm serious, folks, the core gut English 123 introduction to Shakespeare is a thing of legend in Oberlin. Did you take introduction to Shakespeare, Terry Haynes? I did not,
5: Tom. Uh, I was a uh, uh, what they called then government and now politics and uh, and religion major, uh, double major.
0: Well, the religion of the double negative has come front and center in the rhetoric of Washington. With your years of experience down there, what's the follow on from what we observed yesterday? Is it a one off event that drifts away into the August heat or does it have any permanent substance to Republicans in Washington?
5: Well, I think it does. You know, the yeah, uh, uh, you know, there are plenty of times that congressional Democrats didn't agree with President Obama. Congresses uh, have been the same majority as the president. Always find themselves uh, in these sorts of pickles. I think the uh, the immediate fallout of interest to markets, though, is that I think uh, Republicans are going to feel a little bit freer about trying to, to challenge and and uh, when necessary and guide when necessary the. Uh, the policy of the United States government right. on things that are either directly related, such as Russian sanctions and the like, uh, uh, or weapons sales, and things that are indirect, uh, and, and that includes trade, because I think the. Uh, what I've been saying for about a month now, uh, and I continue to see signs of it uh, this week, is that uh, uh, Congress is thinking about uh, starting to take back some of its uh, trade related powers that it long ago ceded. Okay, with. that's
0: important. How will they do that, particularly buttressed up as the clock to the midterms? can they take? How do they take power back from the executive branch?
5: Well, it's in. in uh, I mean, this stuff is never easy, but in uh, but in a technical sense, it's easy. The uh, what you have is a situation where you know Congress constitutionally has the tariff power. It has given some to the president uh, for national security purposes, for uh, you know the three o the three o one uh, the purposes that are now being used for intellectual property. Uh, what is what is emerging as a proposal is the idea that uh, Congress has to uh, pass a joint resolution to approve uh, the use of uh, – the, the president's use of trade powers, uh, tariff powers on national security – uh, on uh, matters related to national security. And there, there was a fairly meaningless resolution that came out of the Senate last week, uh, but there no. are signs from uh, – particularly from – the heads of the the trade committees, so Senator Hatch in the Senate, Congressman Brady in the House, uh, that they're thinking about uh, uh, pushing that and. Uh, so, you know, this is clearly meant as a warning to the administration. right? And, uh, and so Congress can pass a statute to do your direct question. Congress can pass a law and actually tuck it into the spending bills, tuck it into a bunch of different places, and uh, right. essentially dare the president to veto it over that, Who which he, I probably wouldn't do.
0: With the news flow, and I'm not talking just about the upper over Helsinki and all that. I'm talking about yeah. the trip, NATO, you know, England, right. Helsinki. But even before that. Who's got the upper hand in the to the election discourse, Republican legislators or a Republican president? Who's got the upper hand right now?
5: Uh, I say the I say the legislators in no small part because the legislators are up for reelection and the legislators will calibrate uh, their own responses. I mean, their their own political calculus uh, will in, in many cases differ from the president's. These are all. These are all local elections yes. There's an aspect to, to, to which this is going to be uh, a, uh, a referendum on the president. But that's that's usually not the dominant aspect. Uh, what is the dominant? Election. We spoke
0: to Tom Reed of the 23rd District, of New York, Corning, New York, yeah. Corning Glassworks, talked to him this morning. And he said sure. just what you said, which is, yeah, it's like there and he doesn't agree with the president on what's happened in the last few days. And then there's this huge. But, you know, we're going to continue with this hugely popular policies Within the Republican, right. and as Congressman Reed said, the Republican silent majority—they haven't wavered, have they?
5: No, I think they haven't. And and uh, Congressman Reed, who is a, a, a very smart uh, member and a very smart politician, I think makes a, a, an important point here. The way I would put it is that. Uh, the Republican Congress and President Trump have always been in a coalition government. When they agree on on uh, pursuing big things together, as they did on tax, they can be very effective. But when they disagree on on things, which they do quite often, uh, those things aren't going to gain traction. And you know, you have seen a uh, a lack of cohesion on lots of lots and lots of different yeah. issues, from uh, from spending issues to. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, to immigration and right. a bunch of other things, so you know, these, you know, they, you know, you're not putting words in Congressman Reed's mouth, but uh, you know, these are people that don't think they're being led around uh, right. by the nose at all. They they think they're you know, it's their agenda as much as the president.
0: Terry Haynes with ISI with us right now, uh, expert on policy. If the Republicans keep the House, and I don't know what the polling is right now, but let's suggest that would be a modest surprise. What's the first Wednesday of November? big policy prescription for a Republican Trump, a revitalized Republican House and an assumed Republican Senate. What's the next big thing after they win the election?
5: Today, let me let me do a sentence to set up. Today, I think the likeliest, and we're a long way away, as you know, from the election, but today I think the likeliest outcome is that Republicans pick up seats in the Senate. It's a very favorable environment for them there, uh, mostly Democratic seats up. Uh, the House, I think they scrape out a win, but they probably lose some seats, and they already have a very small majority. So I think what you've got in November uh, is a is a tiny Republican majority, but you know, even if there's a Democratic majority, it's tiny. Uh, what you're going to have is a largely muddled uh, uh, ability to do things in Washington with such a with such a small majority. And what you're going to see, I think, is an emphasis on the second-tier issues that went nowhere this year, and that includes things like infrastructure, uh, things that uh, can be guaranteed to get some uh, some bipartisan buy-in, uh, things that are they will be very popular uh, across the base, uh, and I think that's where they pivot to.
0: Terry, thank you so much for the briefing. Very informative. Uh, with all that's going on, it's nice to walk away there for a moment, folks. I would not not. I cannot, not. John, did you study double negatives it's, 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 it's cool. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide. I'm Bloomberg Radio